0: RUNNING BACKWARDS EPISODE 2 BACKSTORY PART (sighs) 1 My mission, as I putter around the country, grinding my bum to shreds on the solidified remnants of sculpted foam padding poking through the T120's threadbare saddle, is to find the few people who knew Patrick Byrne in the months before his demise, and extract from them, through subtle interrogation, their recollections of the man, and whatever sense they might have of why I felt compelled to dispatch him. I'm not holding out much hope with regard to the subtlety thing. I don't know if this is coming across, but I'm quite stroppy i'd lay blame for that on the loss of a beloved wife but doing so would be unfair i've always been a bit stroppy and in concert with an insurmountable predisposition to speak without dissimulation i can be a right gobshite i'm not hoping to exonerate myself through this process my guilt is written indelibly on page five of the Wolfenbury advertiser but I would like to better understand whatever happened thirty-odd years ago, before I sacrifice my freedom. This is, in theory at least, an act of journalism, but it's also perhaps a catharsis, a coming to terms with my past and its implications for my future. So far, however, given the condition of my ass, it feels more like an exercise in self-flagellation. Whilst I take full responsibility for the actions which instigated this adventure, its conception and form is entirely the work of Mark Barry's grotesque imagination. By association, I also blame Lizabetta Folco. Lizabetta is a former betting shop manager called Susan, who discovered a knack for beguiling idiots with a form of bargain bucket perspicacity and set out to monetize it. She started booking herself to appear at psychic fairs, where she specialized in pretending to regress credulous punters back to their past lives. From what I know of her work during that period, her professional credentials must have amounted to a diploma in Jane Austen, because her female victims had invariably pre-lived as witty young virgins who eventually found happiness in the arms of the most unlikely suitor, whilst the gentlemen all turned out to have been Colin Firth. Susan came to the attention of a talent manager who helped reinvent her as lizabetta crappy Russian accent and all, and started scattering her onto the stinking midden of daytime TV her makeup, mien, and accent intensified into something which would terrify children in a Disney film, and her shtick rapidly evolved as she began to identify as a therapist specializing in repressed memory recovery. Unsurprisingly, nobody commented on the fact that the theory of repressed memories is broadly considered to be cobblers and is sheepishly tolerated only on the fringes of psychology under the banner of dissociative amnesia. Likewise, the authority implied by her self-identification as a therapist was never questioned, even though any shyster can legally claim such a title without any recognisable qualification. The fact that Lizabetta was a fraud should have been achingly obvious to anybody who cared but nobody did daytime tv is a hungry beast and it must be satiated so what if a bunch of vulnerable innocents were harvested from the participating audience and turned into kibble it's tv all hail tv after a few years surfing the studio sofas Lizabetta was snaffled by a production company that makes the sort of overwrought pseudoscience hogwash the tabloid readers mindlessly ingest from channels too far up the list for polite people to bother with. They specialized in conspicuously stupid ghost hunters and shows claiming to uncover the truth about things which were blatantly devoid of intrigue. Lizabetta fitted right in and enjoyed a few seasons of celebrity until, inevitably, her ego and her viewing figures headed in different directions on the inflation curve, and she was acrimoniously cancelled. That was the moment Mark Barry pounced. For him, there's nothing saleable in success. His métier is decline, and Elizabeth's disintegration was gloriously flamboyant, as she splashed herself across the papers, claiming that everything from misogyny to witchcraft had conspired to deprive her of the opportunity to do her ever so important work. Her real concern, naturally, was for all the poor suggestible saps who she hadn't yet managed to discombobulate by convincing them to remember fictional childhood horrors. Mark Barry's answer, surprise, surprise, was for her to write a book, charting her career, exploring her science, and, preferably, cataloguing the dimensions of any high-profile lovers. He secured an advance from one of the backstreet publishers of grubby-minded landfill he regularly traded with, and set to work shaping Lizabetta's opus into digestible, disposable pulp. At the heart of the book, he said, would be a series of new case studies which would, he said, serve to validate Elizabetha's work. What he didn't say was the thing that everybody knew, that Lizabetta was a contrived and irritating showman, and the real interest for her audience had always been the salacious recollections her patients were cajoled into revealing. And so he set about recruiting victims. "'Sally died slowly. "'I'm not going to share that with you. "'Those months were too precious and too excruciating. "'The trauma, even now, is a constant companion, "'intensified, perhaps, by a determination in those long, heavy days "'to subjugate my emotions to the needs of my wife and daughter. "'For a year afterwards, I was coping.' But as my little girl began to acclimatise to her own grief, I started to dream. At first there were shapeless abstractions which lingered only momentarily past waking. It was a process of several years for these somnolent blobs to solidify into anything tangible. In time I started to find myself just occasionally lying startled and wide-eyed in those creepy hours before dawn waiting for the adrenaline to shiver its way out of my veins as the image of my wife's naked body sliding into an open grave faded from that half-conscious place between the brain and the eyes dreams can be cruel my wife wasn't tipped discourteously into a muddy hole not unless the people at the crematorium told some extraordinary fibs about what happens behind those curtains. And I'm fairly certain she wasn't naked either. She'd have hated that, especially since her mummy tummy never quite pinged back into shape the way she wanted. I likened it to blancmange once. That turned out to be a long day. About a year and a half ago the dream began to change. The scene was identical, just the body was different, a wiry young man with oil-black hair flopping over one eyebrow. I woke again with that awful rush, still reeling from the terror and trying to separate the substantive murk of the bedroom from the technicolor fiction my treacherous bloody mind had concocted. I was immediately aware that despite the familiarity of the setting and the sequence of events, something other than the identity of the corpse was different about this variant, and panting through the aftermath, I was conscious of a new emotion. I felt guilty. There's ample opportunity in life to experience guilt, but it's a middling dull kind of emotion for the most part. I felt guilty when I went off to play army in the woods after school, and then told my mum the bus was late. She stared me down and asked if it was perhaps the bus driver who'd rolled me in mud and covered me in leaves. Like every nine-year-old should, when tangled in a lie of their own making, I made things worse and confirmed that it was indeed Mr. Beard who had befouled me. "'Back then I was sent upstairs for an unscheduled bath "'and a period of quiet reflection on the art of lying. "'These days Mr. Beard would probably end up on a list.' "'Guilt was that thing, that rumbling ambivalence, "'feeling ashamed of the thing you've done "'whilst hoping to God you'll get away with it. "'I had never experienced the clamouring, heart-stopping intensity,' which accompanies the suspicion that you might have done something truly unforgivable. Because even though the dream was no more than a confection, spun from twisted fragments of memory and the sour tendrils of grief, I was almost convinced that a truth lay at the heart of it, a truth which had nothing to do with losing my wife. It took several iterations of the dream for the details to properly assemble themselves the young man gradually resolved himself into patrick Byrne, not visually but his presence was woven with a developing certainty of who he was and as i bumbled through those months i became increasingly sure of the fact that i had been at university with someone called patrick Byrne and that he had vanished somewhere between the summer ball and the start of my penultimate semester. The graveyard itself, which always appeared as a generic plot, dressed with lopsided headstones borrowed from a childhood of hammer horror, didn't change in form, but again acquired a real-world affiliation. The late-night stagger from the Union Bar to the nearest chip-shop was achieved most expeditiously by cutting through, and often regurgitating in, the grounds of a church which sat adjacent to the boundary of the campus. I don't have a clear memory of the place. A pound a pint on a Friday night was a superb antidote to cognition, but the dream graveyard was most definitely its proxy and hadn't i reeled between the stones on one of many nights in equal measure propping up and leaning on john hardle when we paused to wonder at the discovery of an open grave and hadn't we mused around mouthfuls of potato scallop that this would be an excellent place to hide a body you'd simply dig down beneath the floor of the exposed grave deposit your victim, throw in enough mud to disguise him or her, and then somebody would come along the following day and obligingly cover up your crime with a legitimate interment in the eyes of God, blah, blah, blah. Undoubtedly this scheme had been originated in fiction and perhaps enacted in fact long before we imagined it but inebriated undergraduates are notoriously confident of their own ingenuity and I have little doubt that we would have assumed authorship. Perhaps potato scallops were unique to Wolfenberry, but I have never stumbled across one since. A chip, in the British sense, is of course an oblong of potato cooked in a bathtub of oil for so long that it starts to taste of something. A potato scallop seemed to be a potato that somebody couldn't be bothered to cut into oblongs, and was instead thrown unspoilt into the hot oil until it had soaked up enough saturated fat and leached out enough starch to foreshorten human life by a measurable factor. If you were feeling fancy, you could opt to have your scallop battered, which made it deadlier still. In either form, they were bloody lovely over time the dream or rather the guilt it engendered escaped the limits of the fuddled snoring hours and manifested itself as a conscious dread that niggled at me from the periphery of everything i did i quickly found that turning to confront it was terrifying i'm not a killer I've got better things to do, but every time I allowed the notion into the active bit of my brain, I grew further convinced that I had indeed done something unspeakable, and with that certainty grew an increasingly vivid vignette of the probable repercussions. I wouldn't survive in prison. The toilet seats are made of metal for a start. It's barbaric. "'More importantly, I haven't finished being dad yet. "'For all her gob, my little girl hasn't really started life properly, "'apart from some of the bits I wish she'd delay indefinitely, "'such as driving my car into that bin and having sex with Dan. "'Dan's a nice lad and his hair is interesting, "'but he's lucky I'm not a habitual murderer "'because he'd definitely be next on the list.' Taking two cups of tea into my daughter's bedroom on a Saturday morning should feel progressive, but whilst I can just about get in and out without blubbering indignantly, I'm always haunted by the sight of that flushed, contented face with its shag of beard and its weird slick of hair lying next to my beautiful, virtuous baby girl.' Admittedly, she'd likely be sparking up a joint and peeling last night's knickers off the floor with her toes, but she's still my princess, and she needs me. I found Mark Barry's Facebook post sometime around about Easter, as everyone else exchanged chocolate eggs without ever asking themselves why, and I celebrated the March equinox and anticipated the fecundity of the coming season by ignoring the whole bloody thing sally was dead my girl was out partying and i had little to do other than wrestle with the question which had been following me around and poking me in the frontal lobe for months this thing with the dream and the graveyard and patrick Byrne. Was it just a jumble of loosely associated brain garbage imagined into vague coherence under the influence of traumatic bereavement? Or was it, as I feared, the raggedy remnants of a memory? At that time, I didn't bother to look for research on repressed memories or the link between dreams and dissociative amnesia. What I did do was turn to the massive, mutton-headed hive-mind of the internet to find out what Becky, a dental hygienist from Bolton, thinks about it all. Wading through the viscous suppositional excreta dribbling from the over-exercised but undernourished minds of those neurotic denizens of the web who prefer to speculate blindly about their troubles rather than spending two minutes reading up on the actual fucking facts... I eventually stumbled upon Mark Barry's post and arrived at a stupid idea. Why not volunteer for this deeply scientific study into memory retrieval which is being conducted under laboratory conditions, no doubt, by that irritating Russian flimflammer off of the telly? I'd like to extenuate my idiocy at this point I had contemplated seeking professional help. According to my GP, grief counselling on the government dime was an open offer, and as an alternative, a quick scoot around Google easily located enough private therapists to fill a convention hall. But what was I going to say? I had a bad dream, and now I think I'm a murderer? At best, I'd sound like a twat at worst i might trigger some professional reporting obligation and end up on the sticky end of a police inquiry i couldn't live with an undisclosed homicide in my past but i sure as hell wasn't going to advertise my culpability without first figuring out exactly what occurred and why i quailed at the prospect of some burly copper scowling at me through a haze of cigarette smoke and demanding that I explain my actions. How the fuck do I do that? All I had was a vague certainty that an Irishman disappeared, and the burdensome notion that I might have killed him and chucked him down a hole. Surely the why is contingent on the what, and the what was a fuzzy old muddle. Before I threw myself under the bus, I was determined to at least recall my actions before attempting to account for them. I didn't mention murder when I applied to join the study. If nothing else, ceding a crucial revelation might have undermined Lizabetta's credibility, and she appeared quite capable of doing that herself. I did play the dead wife card, though and it was probably that which prompted the swift reply I received, inviting me to an initial assessment at Mark Barry's office. It transpired that the assessment was more concerned with contractual compliance than psychological suitability. Mark Barry wanted exclusivity, and that was non-negotiable. Surely you can't copyright someone's memory... I posited, but you can stop on talking about it publicly or privately in any medium now known or invented in the future, across all territories, in perpetuity, so help me God. Anyway, whatever, I signed. The treatment, if that is anywhere near to being the right word, was to take place at Ms. Volko's consulting rooms in Richmond. The plural was misleading, as was the assumption I made that Richmond implied classy. I delivered myself to a dismal renter-room office block, which had at least nine of its ten toes in Hounslow, and was guided to a generic single-desk cuboid by a grumpy man called Ranbir. Elisabetta, was even less plausible in real life than she was in the YouTube clips I watched in preparation for our session. Her graceless exit from the spotlight had perhaps stripped some of the gloss from her act, and there were definite hints of Susan poking through. Whilst she endeavoured to maintain the accent throughout, I would have to place her homeland somewhere between Volgograd and Thanet that she did take herself very seriously, and it's hard to laugh in the face of such an utter lack of self-awareness. Susan's Carnaby Street gypsy bangles clattered incessantly as she flapped her arms around, pointing to things on a PowerPoint presentation which were intended to either assure me of the efficacy of her technique, or to disorientate me sufficiently that I wouldn't ask any awkward questions. When the briefing was done, she asked me to pull a small sofa into the middle of the room. I obliged and then made myself comfortable. I wasn't expecting miracles. In fact, I was fervently hoping that none would occur. On some level, intentionally tucked away below any supraliminal thought, I had made a deal with myself that if lizabetta Folko couldn't unearth anything worrisome during her deep dive into my psychical back catalogue then i would draw a line under the matter chalk it up as a paranoid aberration born of emotional exhaustion and just bloody well get on with my life I don't think there's any doubt that by choosing a gaudy charlatan rather than an actual mental health professional, I had attempted to weight the game in my favour, but, regrettably, Lisa Better volko turned out to be better at her job than her idiotic Slavic pantomime suggested. Half an hour's worth of gentle probing was sufficient to extract a full confession from me, and I found myself curled on the sofa, hugging my knees into my chest, snivelling out the incriminating scraps of my darkest recollection. "'Don't put feet on furniture,' lizabetta insisted as she hurried out of the room, spinning through contacts on her mobile phone. "'Here we go then,' I thought." "'as I obediently sat up "'and put my feet back where they belonged. "'Will there be sirens? "'Because that must be excruciating. "'Everybody watches a police car "'when it howls past on blues and twos, "'but imagine being the person it stops next to. "'Forget judicial process. "'All those sticky beaks "'will have you convicted and hung in a moment.' "'I waited.' I don't know why I waited. I could just have walked away, denied the whole thing, avoided a lot of bother. Maybe we all have a grubby-cheeked little schoolboy inside us, not in the Catholic priest sense of course, who takes control when we're caught in the act and causes us to freeze in place, too scared to run and incapable of feigning innocence. Certainly something compelled me to linger And I spent some time wondering what handcuffs would feel like, and, stupidly, hoping that they wouldn't be cold. Running Backwards was written by Nick Foreshaw and performed by Stuart Organ. Direction was by Alex Cazalet and the producer was Steve Manley. It was a Barefoot Ape production. If you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review and tell your friends. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit runningbackwards.co.uk.